Hi listeners, and thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Between September 2019 and March 2020, Fantasy Animation are delighted to be curating a series of screenings at the Cinema Museum in Kennington. These screenings will feature live podcast recordings and Q&As with special guests. Full details of each screening can be found at the Cinema Museum website. That's www.cinemamuseum.org.uk. We hope to see you there. Hello listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast uh, with me, Alex Sargent. And with me, Chris Holliday. And uh, today we're taking on another fantasy franchise. Uh, we did uh, Lord of the Rings a few weeks ago, um, or a few episodes ago, and it's time to sort of start um, the journey along another one, this time another behemothic one, perhaps more behemothic than, than Lord of the Rings itself. We're going to do um, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Are you excited, Chris? I'm, in- I'm excited. Of course, we're doing this podcast in the UK, which means we will call it Philosopher's Stone. If yes. we were doing this anywhere else in the world, maybe we'd perhaps call it the Sorcerer's Stone. Yes. Um, but we'll do, we'll do Philosopher's but I've not seen it since <laughs> but, it came out. But so if I'm... listeners haven't worked out so far, we are English. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, acutely so. Um, luckily, it's not just us two idiots that are, uh, are going to talk about it, though. We've been joined by a very special guest, um, Francis Pheasant Kelly, who is a reader in screen studies and director of the Centre for Film, Media, Discourse and Culture at the University of Wolverhampton. Uh, Fran uh, specialises in a number of different areas from American cinema in relation to abject space, fantasy cinema post 9-11, which is the subject of her, of her book, um, and uh, is particularly interested in the connections between science and visual culture and she's published widely on these areas um, both here at Wolves and, and, and elsewhere in her career with a number of monographs and publications so Fran, thanks for coming on the podcast Thank you um, So, uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone uh, we're starting at the beginning of a very important franchise in the history of fantasy cinema and, and the history of popular entertainment I guess uh, you've written on Harry Potter before I know what is it about um, the film franchise overall but I guess more more specifically the first film in the franchise that you think is uh, worth uh, listeners to have a little think about today as we revisit the movie well I think I, I actually didn't go and see the first film at the cinema it was, a, I was, it was about the fifth film before I went to the cinema to see it and I think my interest in it was sparked um, initially by my interest in 9-11 um, and uh, I, I was looking at uh, a, a way of a new way of looking at 9/11 and how uh, how it could be analysed. And what I did notice that was after looking at the IMDb uh, world ranking um, top box office that Harry uh, Harry Potter after 9/11 was at the top. But if we look back retrospectively, the uh, the entire box office or more or less was dominated by fantasy so I thought there's something kind of interesting going on here that what is it about 2001 that was such a turning point uh, for fantasy. That's really Um, interesting actually because I think um, I've thought about this a little bit before when I've tried to categorise this era and it's an interesting period 2001 because you've got uh, Spider-Man that comes out what it's sort of late summer is it, it's just after the um, obviously the, the two towers yeah because town, very famously didn't they have to edit out some of the sequences from the movie so but, but it's interesting because that really does connect up the superhero genre with 9-11 in a different kind of way yeah, 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 um, yeah. But yeah just after I think 
And, and then you've got Harry Potter and, of course, Lord of the Rings a few months later. Although I say, of course, Harry Potter made more money. Am I right in thinking that? Or did Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, make more I money? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, they both made a lot, right? They, they were um, both very successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you say, they came out uh, about six weeks after nine, six to eight weeks after 9-11, wow. I think. So, so it's an interesting period, right? Because um, you've got a lot of fantasy films that have already been made. So mm-hmm. it would be hard to make the claim that they're being made as a response to 9-11, well, but, but they certainly think, received yeah. within a post-9-11 climate. Absolutely. I don't think you could... You can't claim that they were made with 9-11 because they were in production. Mm-hmm. They were written before mm-hmm. um, before the uh, before the events, before the attacks. So um, I think they were received differently. But certainly as the franchise continued, I think the films were invested with uh, 9-11 imagery that wasn't necessarily apparent in the novels Um, so yeah there were things and tropes that came out throughout the rest of the franchise that um, that were direct reflections of 9-11. Could you, yeah. could you elaborate on that? Because we're not going to be able to... Not, you're not coming on the journey uh, to the next book with us. So, uh, uh, what, what, Are there any examples? Are we talking about sort of when it gets a bit darker and it gets the rise well, of sort of... absolutely. Voldemort? I think the whole uh, series darkens... Um, it, the opening credits become slower, they become more melancholic um, and sombre. So there's a, a definite darkening throughout the series, but it's not only uh, limited to the Harry Potter films. I think it was pervasive. Um, and uh, that darkening of tone in the opening credits is reflected in the narrative as well. And this, uh, whether it's coincidence or not, it's curious that the uh, the uh, Killing of Voldemort came so close to that of Bin Laden, um, wow. and so yeah, um, within two months. So it, there is that curious aspect about it. I suppose that's the issue when you're doing this sort of I don't know mm. allegorical political mm. analyses. And I know that we've we've talked off air about the inevitability of something like or somebody like Donald Trump, where there is something that happens within the real world, and you're mm. sort of every every text after, in this case, 2016 or something, mm. it must be must be connected in some way. And so, but I think the point is right that we can't 9-11 didn't invent the fantasy film but certainly there's some interesting you know as you said curious curious incidents and, and overlaps and points of mm-hmm. perhaps continuity and rupture obviously we're dealing with philosopher's stone which is you know i suppose not a rare case but an instance where the first book is the first film which is not often the case or isn't necessarily true with a lot of franchises um so the first book if the film comes out 2000 or starts filming 2000, released in 2001, um, the first book is what 97. So this is yeah. so yeah. So that that this is an adaptation. But I just yeah, I wonder whether the obviously the film itself is being interpreted and, and the films themselves as a franchise are being interpreted in a particular kind of way. And also with the shift in director, because very famously different directors come and go. Uh, and to my mind, it was what the or the third film I think Azkaban, which is Curon, which is the maybe. The shift. I mean, the first one's very light. We'll talk about this, but very light and, and very yeah, lovely. Yeah, I think I think that's why I like the first one so much because it has got this innocence about it, and it's just enjoying the magic, um, and it kind of appeals to the child in me yeah. when I'm watching it. Um, and what's really nice is that I can watch it with my seven-year-old niece, who's reading all the books and watching all the Brilliant. films, and we we can have an adult conversation about it. So. Yeah. No, the first the first two I always kind of partition off as the first two, mm. and then the, 
because they're both Columbus, so they're both Columbus movies. Is, is Columbus? Yes, yeah, the f- Chris Columbus did the first two, then it was um, Quaron, Quaron, and then, and then um, Yates. I think David Yates did some of the later and then ones. Who's the? I forget the name of the director who did the final lot. Um, so what I'll do is say a sentence that shouldn't continue. It'll just keep going and going until Chris tells me what it is in Wikipedia, and the answer is. So after Quaron, yeah, Quaron did the third one. The fifth, uh, the. Kiron did the third one. The fourth one, Goblet of Fire, is Mike Newell. Uh, and then the remaining four, so Order of the Phoenix, mm-hmm. Half-Blood Prince, and then the Deathly Hallows, both parts, uh, were David Yates. So there's a real mix of directors and, and um, British directors, non-British directors. This is obviously a British franchise, I think. Are we right in saying it's a British film franchise? Um, I would say I was, it's British in every sense of the word. Well, I mean, yes. A lot of my notes are... Um, watching the film again are, you know, um, Enid Blyton, Boarding School, these kind of things. I think the books um, are, are very entrenched within a certain type of storytelling that's sort of, you know, the, uh, the, the um, Tom Brown school days kind of stuff where, where, where a lot of the pleasure in the movie, actually, I think there are moments of magical wonder, but almost the, the thing the film's most interested in is like um, full English breakfasts in a school canteen yeah. and being late for lessons and getting lost in school and and play and being naughty as well yeah. and being transgressive because um, there's a play made on entering restrictive areas and yeah. um, the forbidden forest and there's these kind of places and that's another reason I'm really interested about the space the use of space in the film and um, so there's these certain spaces that are off bounds and it kind of you've got to go in there yeah as a child you've got to go in there that's or really even, as an, even yeah. as an adult I tell you what, that's also really interesting in terms of how it operates as a fantasy in that in the I think these books are very, the books and the films are very interesting how it plays with the sort of rhetoric of fantasy in that we start in the quote-unquote real world. Magic is hidden, magic is in this other world, um, although it's, it permeates and exists within our world, but the film sort of takes this almost portal quest journey into the land of the wizards, where we go from a world where these things are not permitted to a world where they are, and then instantly as it does that, just as you said, and that hadn't occurred to me, it then starts closing off the kids. Look, look at this world of wonder you never knew existed, except don't go in there, don't go in there, and there's actually threat here too. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a opening up and a closing down, like an accordion of magic almost. Um, well, Accordion of Magic will be the um, subtitle. Harry, po- Harry Potter and the Accordion, accordion of, of Magic. Of magic. Um, and, and Chris, what about in terms of um, CGI animation, VFX, um, how does the film sort of fit within that story? I guess this is an early noughties bl- uh, blockbuster, so we get yep. the, the slow encroachment of CGI as the sort of dominant medium. Um, well, as you said, the, the film, or the intrusion of the magic, or the, the wonder in this accordion, um, is obviously effects. We, the, the intrusive fantasy is the, is the kind of visual effects. Um, my notes are often just an itemization of scenes and sequences that are just bits of visual effects. Um, from sorting hats to obviously the invisibility cloak, there's lots and lots of... And, you know, and, and, and I guess the issue is that the, the film itself treats the effects as effects. So the, the cloak itself is something that is, is adorned by the, the children and that, that is an effect. They become their own sort of... Um, the film is not about special effects, Alex, <laughs> nor is it about animation. Um, but it's, it, there, I don't know, there's something quite... And I know that, that um, you've written about this in regards to the la- like animated landscapes. And what, I, so for me, it's interesting because Alex is coming to your work, Francis, from a fantasy perspective. I'm coming to it from you know, the, la- the um, staircases that move. That's my interest in the film, the way in which the world is, is amended and, and nuanced by these visual effects. As I said, I just have a, a, a list of sort of um, 
effect sequences, I guess, but I'm also, what I'm interested in is how the film itself plays out like, um, and this is, I guess, a spoiler alert, but Voldemort's relationship um, to Quirrell. I that mean, idea if that spoiled anything for anyone... They are 18 years too late. <laughs> this is not the authority on popular culture, sure. everybody. Go sure, out sure, and sure. find new uh, things. Um, it, was, it was really directed at Francis's seven-year-old niece. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Spoiled yes, the, the yeah. film. Um, but Voldemort's relationship to Quirrell, which is one of the big revelations in the, in the climax, um, that idea of kind of parasitic, the parasitic relationship between Quirrell and, um, and Voldemort is, is a sort of human with a visual effect, or the kind of symbiote, it's the human with the visual effect added on, which is kind of what the film is. It's like the live action with, and, and British, pretty much an all British cast, pretty much an all British cast? Pretty much an all British cast. Um, with, with these sort of, as I said, nuances and details of, of, of visual effects. So, yeah, I mean, I, I will have things to say. The film, yeah, 2001, as you say, coincides with the first wave of superhero movies, Spider-Man you mentioned, obviously Lord of the Rings, which we've talked about previously. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think if we're going to look at a history of visual effects in the early 2000s, you go to these big franchise movies first off, um, and Harry Potter's a, a prime example, and the first one in particular. So Yeah, so I think that... Um as, as you say, I, it, uh, there's a kind of um, correlation between visual effects and um, the success of fantasy film and superhero films. Um, so I think that's one another key reason. So I'm not saying it's down to fantasy or that we yeah. read certain things into it, which we may do, but it's yeah, primarily due to the special effects. No, I love the idea of space. I'd not really thought about these sorts of forbidden spaces yeah. and and spaces where the effects might reside don't go into the bathroom later on in the you know don't go into these places um but yeah so i think we've got uh, and so much of the film is about is about characters looking at different spaces both in wonder or in abject yeah, i'm sure yeah, yeah. That, um, you can say much more than i can about that but what struck me and perhaps it's because we, we've done we did lord of the rings um a few episodes ago and a lot of things we said there was that a lot of lord of the rings is rooted in a sort of love of physicality and there's not you know huge amounts of great big special apart from the sort of minds of moria sequences most of it is uh actors in constructive sets with some embellishments on the top. Um, and there was this love of sets we kept talking about here. Whilst here, I think, and I know this isn't a qualitative judgment, but here there's a lot of um, scenes where characters are staged to look at the effects, not be part of the effects, mm -hmm. but look at them. Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's really interesting in terms of the way that they function as spectacle. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where they go into uh, was it the witch's cauldron mm. pub and the the door, the wall separates oh, I and love that's that. yeah, yeah. and the, you kind of there and it kind of encourages that identification with the characters. Mm. So there's that and at the same time there's that shift uh, this parallel world from reality and fantasy and they're kind of running parallel yeah. the whole time through the film and all the time encouraging you to identify with the characters for example the broomstick sequence and it's kind of made out as learning to ride a bicycle yep. or riding a horse so there's this thing that you can latch onto, even though it's absolutely fantastic and you, you they're flying on broomsticks that that it reminds you all the time of what's what you did as a child. Well, I think this is why the films work so well because we're obviously joining the characters in year, in year one. Mm -hmm. So we we they go into the platform mm -hmm. line three quarters and through, we go through with them port, portal quest. 
etc. Um, and then obviously all the films are structured in this way. The next year and the um, the next year, the next guest star, the next all these you know all these sorts of things. Um, but I think the sense of discovery, obviously, obviously children's relationship to discovery and discovering themselves and understanding themselves and spaces and, and where they can and can't go. Um, obviously, space is something that's very particular to Harry Potter, given where he is forced to sleep. Um, Absolutely. And so, so he he is a character intrinsically related to something like space. So the ability to discover all these places. Um, I guess through, through as he goes through the portal, discovering uh, Hogwarts, those you said the bits he can and can't go to as he ascends from year one right the way through. Like I think it's, I mean, we'll hopefully get a chance to deal with all of the films at some point. Um, but the first one, I wonder whether the first one encapsulates a lot of the things that people love about all of the movies. Um, as I said, taps into that kind of childlike aspect of discovery and, and excitement and meeting new people and meeting new friends and meeting new monsters and encountering new fantasies and teachers, the, all these sorts of things I think are really, um, but as you say, like the two worlds run parallel. Um, and, but actually the, fir, the, the opening sequence of the film is set in, in, the, in the real world, Privet Drive. Was it number four, Privet Drive? It, it is Privet Drive. Well, it is, but it's framed from the perspective of the wizards. Yes. Right, which I thought yes. was a really interesting, yeah. t- I, I think the books begin like that, but I'll, yeah. I'll deal with the floods of tweets and emails that tell me the other, other ways. But I'm pretty sure the book begins very similarly. In fact, I think the dialogue is pretty much the same. But we get Dumbledore and McGonagall arriving into Privet Drive on the night of Harry's... Um, well, um, the, the failed assassination of Harry and the assassination of his parents by Voldemort um, and the delivery at Privet Jive. So it's interesting that we start in a real space, but with imagined magical characters. So it's from their perspective that we see the real world. And it's a very kind of mundane space as well. It's an everyday space that, again, encourages that, that sense of reality and sense of belief in it or credibility. Um, but... Uh, for me, it was the Victorian lamps as well, because <laughs> I've actually got a drive with a Victorian lamp in the middle that, and when it snows, it's like Narnia, yep. and it reminds me of that opening scenes of uh, the opening scene of Harry Potter. Um, yeah, uh, and so th- it's a really ordinary space, but it's transformed through the owls, and there's kind of... So I guess my question is, is it ever ordinary then? Or is it, is it ordinary for a split second? Because I think you're right, the framing of it through the, these sort of fantastical characters, mm. the first shot of the film, I think, is Privet Driver and then the owl. And so immediately I, w- I was thinking, ah, okay, there's something... I mean, owls are not fundamentally fantastic, of course, but... Okay. But they are unusual. They are unusual they're, and curious. Unless, unless you live in the countryside, yeah. yeah but even then, they're, they're rare sights. So, so, so I guess my, my, I'm wondering whether, because you're right, that sort of domestic space mm-hmm. and, and the, the uneventfulness of, of Harry's life, then fast forward 10 years later mm-hmm. when he's living this sort of disjointed, uneventful, um, quite constrained life with the Dursleys. Actually, I wonder whether the film ever, or if it does, it's a split second, it sets up normality, but actually the film only ever really gives us a flash of, of normality and, and, and humdrum and the mundane because it's instantly framed by the fantastical characters or it is um, overwhelmed by thousands and thousands of letters or it's over... You know, there, uh, there's never really an equilibrium that we can uh, get onto and I, I actually quite like that. I actually quite... Whilst at the same time the film knows that there are these two parallel worlds, the, the, even the domestic and the, the normal, as you said... It's never really that normal because of that curiosity. Yeah, it's almost actually the, the sequence that I almost find the most uh, difficult to suspend disbelief or whatever the, the term is to describe your engagement with it is actually that opening Dursley sequence. To me, 
it's 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 almost better or easier to read that just as much as a fantasy because although we've got a sort of mundane setting, the, the Dursleys. I mean, yes, they're horrible and villainous, but they're, they're you know they're, they're they're abusive in a sort of cartoonesque. It's dark. Caricatures almost, aren't they? What? Caricatures. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, they're keeping him in a closet. They're you know threatening him with no meals for a week. They you know this is this is abuse, um, but it's framed as comical and and as you say caricatured. As I say, to me, it's 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 they're the twits. They're Roald Dahl, yeah. and and that sequence seems almost the most unbelievable because I don't believe a child. Um, I don't believe, you know, the authorities wouldn't step in and do something about it, you know, um, with this child with his hand-me-down clothes being basically made to be a slave within this uh, middle-class setting. And the hatred they sort of push on him seems unrealistic, not in a bad way, but, but almost and deliberately so. Yeah, it's mediated through the cinematography, mm-hmm. so there's extreme camera angles, and we only ever see them from an extreme low camera angle, so they're kind of made threatening, and we... and. They're always framed quite closely as well, so they're fully occupying the frame. So yeah. uh, there's a, we get a real sense of Harry's claustrophobia enhanced by this, this little tiny space that mm. he's confined So space to. is immediately yeah, being warped absolutely. and disjointed. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, um, I, I, I had a question of... Well, not a question of... I was thinking Britishness. Is this comedy of this opening... It's, it feels very British, like having tea and... I know there was some kind of something... Because you're right, it is very... Uh, dark in lots of ways it is both well lit and very dark at the same time tonally the the dursley sequences are very um dark and and uncomfortable Mm -hmm. but the comedy does the comedy come from a a kind of britishness a kind of absurdity of i don't really know but there's something very british about the way that fiona shaw um and richard griffiths play play that or kind of buffoon authoritative hyper Whatever it is, I don't, I don't know, but it just kind of strikes me yeah. as something British going on there. I don't think it is. I don't think it's dark in the sense it's not troubling. I don't think it's troubling because I think it's macabre. It's it's, it's sort of like Halloween. It's enjoyably grim with a double M. You know, I don't. You know, the the uh, does um, the uh, like Dudley uh, running down the stairs every morning, banging on Harry's ceiling. Like, I mean, I don't. But you know, imagine he did that every morning. He's quite consumed by sort of just being beastly to him. So like, there's a certain. Uh, unbelievable quality to the way they even treat him that's funny um, I don't think we're necessarily you know, we don't take those two as th- that family as seriously as the other threats in the movie which are mm-hmm. conditioned and contextualised within the narrative to be threatening they're not threatening they're, um, they're amusingly wicked in the sort of yeah pantomime sense of the word um, so even so then it's yeah. playing with traditions of British fantasy storytelling I think because and they're also I mean yeah later they get subjected they're a family that gets subjected to magic mm. and that's part of the that's part of the pleasure they they are the subjected to fantasy and so yeah they become I mean they become they're quite as I say quite exaggerated um, characters anyway but there is a pleasure we we know from the start that they're villains but they're not well they're villainous but they're not the real villains um, and so there's yeah I mean I, I, I don't really know kind of quite what to say about their because they often can't recur in this across the series they're often towards the start of a series at the start of the films if I remember um, they establish the place from which Harry must leave and so the, the opening of the first movie um, has you know McGonagall metamorpho- metamorphosing um, we have the intrusive fantasy of Dumbledore and McGonagall um, uh, and Hagrid arriving in the early 80s you fast forward um, and then 10 years later Harry is is you know where he is um, 
Yeah, I think the last line of the, the prologue is something like, good luck Harry Potter, Dumbledore says, good luck Harry Potter, and then we're off with the, the, him and the Dursleys and stuff. And uh, my next note is Reptile House. Yes. Yeah, I was just thinking about right. that. There's a, well, there's just a, a pleasure in seeing Dudley Dursley <laughs> penned in behind the glass, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. And, the, and I think one of the other pleasures of the film is the interaction with animals. And it kind of, as a child, you want to communicate with animals or you uh, and well even as an adult I suppose there's um, a desire or yeah. there's a, a scientific interest even in uh, communicating with animals um, so I think that scene actually works on lots of levels and it fits and in it, with your ideas about yeah. space like that the, because I think the stuff you've written on, on animation and Harry Potter is it's about the kind of constant is it the changeability of the space or the sort of the phantom because the, the glass, I was thinking about the glass in the in the sequence. The glass disappears and reappears mm -hmm. in the in the zoo, and so there's again space is never even in the real world. Space is never really something that is fixed. Yeah, I think there's a, in Harry Potter there's a sentience associated with certain spaces or certain artifacts. Yeah. Well, lots of artifacts. The mirrors come to life. The newspapers come to life yeah. so the sentience is embedded across every aspect of the film um, so yeah and it, I mean visually I think it gives the film visual interest because you mm. can see uh, as the characters are getting a tour of Hogwarts I know we've jumped ahead a little bit but when they're getting a tour of Hogwarts we are getting a tour of Hogwarts you see all the paintings move as I said before the staircases like to move but yeah the, the it seems like the, the the world the fantasy world into which they intrude is constantly uh, moving or is on a, uh, uh, on agency or just sort of there's something always to look at and I think for a spectator visually it's very interesting that there's always something in the background of these scenes um, I remember I can't remember the film but the Marauders map where you have all the people walking simultaneously and your eye you can't take it all in and I feel there's there's something quite um, yeah, stuffed and full about about the film. Does that link at all to its use of CGI and how it depicts this world because I, th I think um, the adaptation what it seems to get right amongst a lot of people who were fans of the books um, is it, it, it people think it looks like what it looks like in the books which is a rare thing often for that to be true I don't know if it's because Harry Potter is quite a sort of new mythology so I hadn't really embedded what it might or might not look like but that's often a common um, virtue of the movie I think a lot of what this film is doing is setting up the visual palette uh, of what will come in, in sort of the whole universe and things. And I, you're right, uh, Chris, it's, it's stocked, it's packed. Every newspaper is full of headlines and moving images that you can't quite see. As they walk through the castle, ghosts are going in and out and they walk into the Hogwarts Hall and there's endless lines of tables and there's things to see in every aspect of the frame. Um, and is, is, is this, you know, the, does the technology lend itself to it? Because I'm almost seeing like a parallel between the opening title, the, the sort of pre-title sequence, Bond-esque sort of pre-title sequence, except we just get a conversation between Richard Harris and um, Maggie. Maggie Smith, um, then into this CGI um, title, Harry Potter yeah. and, the, and the Philosopher's Stone, magic, thunder, lightning, things, and then back down into a world of um, reality and photography. Um, is this a film packed with CGI as part of its status as a, as a, as a blockbuster? It looks like it's time for my impossible question. Yeah. Well, every week, I, Fred, I ask Chris an impossible question. I've just done it. Look, by the sheer horror of his face, he's going to come up with like, something great. Thanks for like killing her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Um, 
Okay, I just want to pause the podcast for a second there, Chris, because I want to talk about social media. What is social media and how can we use it? Social media is an online platform where people get together to discuss, debate, and never shout at one another. But for the purposes of fantasy animation, it's a really important device for us to help grow our audience. I know a like and a retweet seem a bit cumbersome and they seem like they're not a big deal, but taking five seconds out of your day to do that with our posts can really help us spread our visibility. Facebook and Twitter are like standing on street corners with a megaphone, shouting at people. We are the local crazy person, and we need your help to give us a bigger megaphone. Or, if you own an actual megaphone, find a street corner and do it yourself. Yeah, um, yes, I mean, it's, it's there's, as I said, there's a lot going on in the film. I think the, after the metamorphosis of McGonagall and then the, and then the reptile, the snake is digital. I don't know if it begins digital, maybe it's all digital, but at some, at some point it becomes a digital snake. Um, and then there really is a checklist of incredible sequences, um, but are often it is a it is a blockbuster and there is a lot going on. But actually, a lot of the a lot of the visual effects for me are very ground level: a hat and a cloak and um, a, 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 a troll, and they're like objects. I feel like they're not. There's something. I know, I, the first one of the, the most or the, fam- the famous bits of CGI is the. Uh, uh, candles that are hanging in the hall that were originally going to be practical but ended up just being vi- um, visual effects, uh, digital effects. And they're just almost, it's not that they're not there to be noticed, but there's something quite undramatic about them. They're just kind of floating candles. But So I, what I like about the film is that it does have centaurs and it does have um, trolls, but it also has these little, the staircases, the, just the staircases like to change. And I quite like that downplaying of you have two registers in the film. You have characters who are new to Hogwarts who find this incredible. And then you have the prefects who are like, yeah, the staircase is just, don't worry about that. And that, that I like the interplay between those two characters or types of character because it, it, it's two different ways of understanding visual effects. Like, yeah, they're, they're there but, and great. Uh, or these are, this is incredible and, and they can, effects can be given as gifts. The cloak, the, the hat, whatever it is. So I quite like that. In terms of the staging of these sort of set pieces, to me, I'm I'm creating a perhaps false narrative in my head as we're speaking about sort of the different types of CGI. Um, you know, uh, Jurassic Park, which is not the first CGI blockbuster, of course, but it's you know it's a um, tal- talismanic example of early CGI blockbusters. Uh, what do we get there that's actually CGI? We get a lot of characters looking at things in the distance. Yeah, so we get that. Yeah, yeah. that, that's mainly kind what of a surrogate spectator who is watching the effect. We um, watch them watch the effects. And and now flash forward to 2019, we get the Avengers um, inhabiting galaxies and and destroying great big purple monsters with equally great big blue monsters with equally great big green monsters whilst they fly around on a rock that's falling out of the sky that's and there's a much more inhabited sense of of space as it's animated and what we get here is somewhere in the middle in that actually a lot of the big CGI reveals that these are characters looking at at rooms at spaces at monsters Um, there's not many huge there's there's the sequence with the troll which doesn't last very long. No, Most of no. the troll is being looked at by Hermione as it's sort of coming at her. And then there's the Quidditch sequence, which I guess is the, is the one that resembles the sort of vocabulary of, of, of contemporary CGI blockbusters. But what we have here, perhaps because of the narrative, but perhaps because of the, the technical limitations of the time, is a lot of characters looking at awesome CGI imagery that they then sort of interact with, only in a limited way, not in a, in a massive way. Does that feed into any of the ways sort of you posit space in the film? Well, I was thinking more about the way that 
the uh, images such as the newspapers, mm -hmm. they're kind of very ordinary things and it's this ordinariness about certain artefacts that uh, and again encourages this, um, uh, this what's the word I'm looking for, believability, that we're encouraged to identify with the characters through the very ordinariness of the artefacts and the way that they come to life. Does that, but does that downplay the C, Does that downplay the CGI a little bit? I mean, I, I don't know the answer, but there's something. You're right that you have things made strange. You have newspapers mm -hmm. made strange, or you have um, letters made strange. Mm -hmm. Does that does that downplay the CGI? Or, or I mean, I don't know. What's what's kind of happening there? I almost think like that. What you're describing, Fran, is sort of the where live action and CGI is is allowed to it to sort of intermingle a little bit, and that mm -hmm. it is rare that we get. Harry Potter riding on the back of a troll trying to whack him on the head or something mm -hmm. that I'm just conjuring in my head. What you get are troll bogeys. Yeah, this sort of somewhere liminal space between something that was CGI and reality. We get the dog's breath. We get the dog's drool. Um, we There's get certainly an emphasis on the abject aspects uh -huh. of, of yeah and yeah and the. Uh, the sweets they're eating at the right at the beginning, the vomit flavoured, etc. So this is on the, the, so this is on the journey to Hogwarts. They the, have the those journey to, okay. the journey to Hogwarts. Uh, so there is a kind of fascination with the abject. Um, they when they yeah the dogs drool and then when they go down into that. Oh, what's that weed called that kind of oh, the, wraps the, around yeah, and yeah, it the feels... No, naughty, the, yeah, yeah, I know the one you mean. The kind of tree with the, the roots, the funny roots. But Hermione knows instantly what it is because yeah. she's read all the books. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the, the Alex Luddite in the room. When we, say, so when we say abject, the film can be understood abject. What do we mean by by abject. We mean vomit-flavoured sweets, of course, but when we, when we mean abject... <laughs> Nothing more the, abject than an I know, but I'm, I'm interested in, in, okay, Harry Potter is an abject text, so it, what do we mean by... It's not easy to simplify, but the, that is one kind of simplistic perception of it through bodily fluids right. and things that disgust us, yeah? So the, he's obviously... Uh, Ron Weasley is disgusted when that drool drips down his shoulder. So that, that reaction to... Dis, to bodily fluids is one aspect of the abject, but it's kind so of a transgression of bodily mm, boundaries. Yeah, things that are out of place. Okay. And I kind of think that the film enjoys that. And I'm just trying to think if it's not the first film where he's vomiting slugs. No, that's, that's, uh, a, no, later that, that's film, a later one, and we'll deal yeah. with vomiting slugs later. Yeah. All that to look forward to. Um. Yeah. So there is this kind of fascination with, with, uh, with bodiliness and bodily disgust. Is, is, it, is it because the abject, uh, this, is, this is sort of, you know, I'm trying to keep up with the things, but the, the abject is often theorised as something that is both sort of um, uh, compelling and yet repulsive at the same time, mm -hmm. right? We're sort of drawn to it, mm -hmm. but at the same time, we want to push it away. And, and, and we've got here a tech, you know, I'm not reading this as a metaphor for CGI, but it's certainly abject sequences lend themselves mm. to the, the technical capacities of CGI and that it is something that we both need to celebrate in this mm. era but also kind of push away because it can't take, it can't interact quite so succinctly with the live action footage in the way that we, we could now, right? Mm. In the, in the, it, it, 
CG almost is a creature and, and is an object, is an abject object within the movie, and that it has to be kept at a distance. And yet, the whole really point of the film is yeah. to try and bring it closer. And yeah. there's a certain. Because I think if you have too much, then it would spoil it, wouldn't it? And yeah, you'd lose your fascination with it. Mm. Does that not play out in the kinds of characters? Because I remember. I think I've asked you previously, Alex, what a muggle is versus a mudblood. And it seems to me there's, there's, the film is obviously about battles and about um, a kind of tension between... Um, it seems like humans that have magic in their lineage, complete wizards... I, I don't really understand the ins and outs of it, but that kind of battleground between the real and the unreal plays out in certain kinds of characters who are part magic, not f completely magic. Do you see what I mean? Like, there's a sort of... There's a, that that abject or that relationship between the real and the unreal, something that you that you connected to visual effects that you both embrace and then are repelled by, that you have to keep at a distance because you're worried about it overcoming you, seems to be exactly how the, there's a, a, a the film's characters have with magic, how they they deal with magic, that they must embrace it and use it, but they're also fearful of of magic and um, and this maybe comes to, to through the kinds of characters, certain characters are discriminated against because they are. Mudbloods versus Muggles. I'm, I'm showing my yeah, lack of knowledge no, in terms yeah, of yeah. Harry Potter. And, and, um, the film has a love-hate relationship with the magic that constructs it. Which actually links to sort of... Um, the, only, the only key text I know on abject theories is Julia Kristeva's work on it, um, who I believe is influenced by a, a psychoanalyst named Melanie Klein, and it's not time to, to have fun with Klein today. But basically, Klein is a very prominent advocate and theorist of... of uh, fantasy um, as, as an early meaning-making device. And, and, and if I'm right in thinking, she sort of her, her steps into the abjects to talk about this moment in your life where you are once, you know, you start making sense of the world through a world of fantasy and then um, discover the world has an objectivity. And you don't discover it through celebrating it, you discover it from a moment of abject because you discover that no matter how many times you smack the table, the table's not going away. No matter how many times you want the, the bottle of milk to be full, it won't be full just mm -hmm. because you, you wish it to be. So there's a love-hate relationship to how we make meaning out of the world forged there in our own ability to, to fantasise the world. The world is both something we can create in our own head and yet dangerous because of that exact reason. Um, so there's, there's something in this synergy between the three, I mean, you know, it's, it's um, how do you see the role of abject working through in the in the movie? It works in lots of ways, but in relation to mudbloods and mm. muggles, so the I don't quite know the difference. Yeah, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't remember the difference. Well, um, I, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll happily say yeah. they're the muggles same thing. They're the yeah. same thing, except one's a swear word and one is just the term for it. So a muggle is a perfectly um, everyone, by the way, all the listeners are going, yeah, we know, but, but for, for the sake of Chris, uh, a muggle, muggle is what you would call someone um, friend, in, on friendly terms, and a mudblood is a, is a horrible term used by sort of Voldemorts. It's a racist term, you know. Well, that's what I was going to mm. say. There's this some racial mm. resonance uh, there, um, and, that, and that kind of permeates through. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So narratively, it works through issues of abject, through its dealing with the rise of Voldemort as a sort of quasi-magical wizard fascist um, and as a, as a figure of revulsion certainly in this movie he's a figure of revulsion isn't he when you see him drink the unicorn blood in the forest he's very much positioned that way and he's then this weird withered thing on the back of Quirrell so in that respect it's abject there are, does this work through in any other ways? Oh, no, well I think uh, Voldemort it, 
Abjection relates to subjectivity as mm -hmm. well and, and attaining a coherent subjectivity. And you can see quite clearly that that doesn't happen with Voldemort. He's split between the Horcruxes. Mm. So there's this uh, dissemination of his sense of self. And in fact, in the first film, that he hasn't got a bodily manifestation mm. and he manifests through Quirrell. So, yeah, there's certainly an abject formlessness about him because... The abject is typically uh, 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 lacks boundaries or transgresses boundaries. He doesn't have a boundary, he doesn't have skin or form. He's just kind of this parasite. evil yeah. Yeah, parasite. I mean, is the space then abject as well? Because the way you're describing the space is not having these boundaries. I, mean, I don't know whether it's quite the same way to describe it, but the, the, the space seems very unstable and which, very open which, to change or oh, I suppose there are you know there are the um, st I suppose staircases the staircases are a good example but I, I feel like a lot of as I said at the start even the domestic space is, is open to intrusion and it's mm. that openness to even the real world because we never actually see that's the crucial thing we never actually see McGonagall and um, Dumbledore enter they just appear, they just appear they're, they're already part of the world and that that immediately changes the way we think about um kind of privet drive uh but i guess you have obviously we have the magic world you have the real world but that's open to another there's this constantly a battle between these two worlds that you run in parallel and i wonder whether that makes that the magic world isn't destabilized by the real characters but the real characters are destabilized it seems to be one way i feel what the real characters aren't destabilized. They don't destabilize the fantasy. They can't destabilize the fantasy world. The fantasy world is only ever able to intrude. The intrusion only happens one way. Humanity doesn't. Even though the characters intrude into the into the fantasy world of Hogwarts, mm. they don't. They don't do anything to change. That they're just open to whatever it's going to do. And and yeah, Harry doesn't change Hogwarts. Hogwarts changes Harry. Yeah, Acro okay. both in this film and then across many others. So space becomes a sort of uh, force to inflict, I guess what you were saying about sort of a, a, a mode of subjectivity onto mm -hmm. all the characters and things like that and Voldemort isn't able to do that because he wants to control the world. Yeah, I think you're right there the, I'm thinking about the opening sequence where McGonagall and Dumbledore appear in Privet Drive. It's yes. incongruous yeah. there's this incongruity about the scene whereas when the ordinary characters are in Hogwarts you don't get that same yeah. uh, displacement so, no. yeah. um, I, I, I have a thing about um, mudbloods and muggles. A muggle is a person with no magical powers right. i.e. who is not a wizard or witch a mudblood is a witch or wizard who's both parents and muggle. Oh, I even see. So actually, what was happening when I was condescendingly explaining it to you earlier was everyone was being, was everyone shouting at me yeah. for getting it wrong. So yeah. if uh, one so parent is a mudblood or muggle and the other parent is half blood or pure blood, then the wizard or witch would be considered a half blood. But I think that, that well, well of, luckily for me, I edit this podcast, so I'm going to come off much better in, 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 on, no, on I, the episode I, than, than uh, point, I did in real life. Yeah, going <laughs> back to your point about kind of subjectivity, it feels like obviously within people. People. And we know that Harry has a particular relationship to Voldemort that we'll discover. But there is, within characters, there's a battle with their magical components. And so that's Harry's battle with his mag magical components is mapped onto uh, Voldemort's relationship to Quirrell in the film, that there's a, there's a battle of identities. But uh, the whole film was about magic and, and when it enters into you, it's an abject... That, that's what the magic causes the... I don't know, the destabilising or the fluidity of bodily boundaries. There's something interesting. Can, can I keep spinning the abject wheel and see yeah. where we go? Because the other, the other thing that occurs to me is in terms of the narrative structure. Um, so, so you've got Harry, normal person, Harry, wizard, 
Hogwarts, unchangeability, anything's possible, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's almost like the narrative need, you're saying about sort of abject being required for a coherent mode of subjectivity. Well, I'm just imagining a movie where there was no evil wizard, there was no Voldemort threat, there was just them running around Hogwarts. And the prob- and whilst actually them running around Hogwarts doing lessons and that stuff is, I would argue, the, the main pleasure of this movie. It's inhabiting the world, going to school for a year at Hogwarts. The narrative needs the abject figure of Voldemort to make this whole thing seem coherent, because at least then it's all leading to something. There's some sort of narrative resolution that this can provide in a world where anything can change, things can move, all that sort of stuff. And actually almost we need Voldemort to create a coherent fantasy um, space. Or, or even mainstream narrative in general mm-hmm. needs that disruption. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other, otherwise, yeah. Well, otherwise there's no equilibrium, is there? Yeah. There's just continual yeah. disruption. Yeah. Um, but there's also no bad magic. We need bad magic because all the magic is taught and taught for we need to fly and this is all, you can become invisible so we need bad magic we need the other side of the you know don't do it this way though we need the, we need the dark arts as much as we need everything else um, so yeah I mean as I, said, I think the whole film is this kind of I'm not going to as I said I'm not going to say I'm not going to say it's not about animation or visual effects but the film itself is this battleground where that the, the narrative of magic, the film is perfect for negotiating visual effects because it's about um, intrusion and immersion into a world that you're not quite sure about that might come back to bite you, but, you know, and it's quite abject because it might spill its guts all over you, it might, you know, leak all over you, and there's something quite interesting about that. Um, but, you know, I like the fact you're also not allowed to do magic, what is it, until you're in the real world and who are over 17. Right, so and, and not during the school holidays. Yeah, not yeah. during the school holidays. So it's quite kind of regimented like that. Um, my other note, yeah, my other note is the entrance to to, uh, to Diagon Alley where the bricks move mm. and that kind of material CGI because you hear it clunking and changing. Mm. So what you mentioned earlier, Fran, about um, yeah, the real world because that's the real world, isn't it? Not not the not the en- the en- the entrance to something. Yeah. The entrance to Diagon Alley is that Di- Diagon Alley or is that the real world? Because that. Because then the real world's just being totally changed, rather than it being the entrance to the fantasy. Well, it's, it's a sort of, it's, I think, it goes right back to the first five minutes of the movie, right? So you've got... We, are we still in the we're, first we're gonna, We're staying there. <laughs> uh, um, we've got Dumbledore and, and um, McGonagall in the real world. We see the real world through their perspective. Then the film shifts and we get the real world as told from people living in the real world. Except that we know this isn't the whole real world, because the real world, according to this movie, has Dumbledore and McGonagall in it. So actually, when they go into the Harry, when they go into the Wizarding World, the Wizarding World isn't another world; it's a completion to our world. I think um, fantasy is called this a process of, of um, fantasy. Often tell a narrative of thinning, where the idea is the narrative starts thin and then is thickened out as it's sort of um, as it's the story is told. And this is we get a thickening out of our world. So Diagon Alley is. In the, in the world of Harry Potter, Diagon Alley exists in London at the back of a pub somewhere, and you can access it if you are within the wizarding community. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hogwarts exists somewhere, you can get a train to it. The, uh, I, think they're even like, I don't know if they do this in the films, but even the book, they talk about sort of a spell. There's a spell encased around the castle whereby if you get within five miles of it, you suddenly remember you've left your gas on or something like that and you have to go back. Yeah. Um, so there's all these coded things to say that actually this is in our world, but it's a world we do not have access to. Um, Which goes back to your point, friend, about the Hogwarts as well, being yeah. a space where there are partitioned off places that are forbidden or that they are... 
um, yeah, but not accessible, or certainly not accessible in a way that, um, yeah, that all students can access them. Uh, but the diagonality sequence is yeah. interesting in that you get this incredible CGI revealing of it, and then it's set. And I've actually, my point about earlier about how there aren't actually that much joys of sets in the world, that is a, that is a set. That is a lovely set to look at, and the camera pans around and enjoys and things like that. Yeah. So it's 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 it gives with one and takes with the other immediately as well. Which probably links to your saying about sort of elements of believability. Once you've had this great big phantasmagoric transformation of bricks revealing themselves and becoming kind of plastic-like, you have to then ground it back in some sort of physicality for people to latch onto it. I really like the diagonally sequence. I should. I've uh, walked down it. Have you? I so have. where is it? It's in Slough somewhere. Oh, <laughs> oh is, is this in, in yes. the Harry Potter world? Yeah. Right, right, but that goes okay. back to the materiality of sets. Like, we yeah. can't all visit the sentient sets that you're describing, but what we can do is visit some sort of yeah. tangible material version of those sets, or... Yeah, but that is that, that, is that the, the real... Or do they re, I'm assuming they've reconstructed the set based uh, on... I think you're breaking it's hearts, Alex. The breaking real, hearts. It's the real thing, but Gringotts Bank must be CGI. It is CGI, isn't it? The interior of Gringotts Bank is Australia the House on the yeah. Strand. Um, oh, the exterior is CGI. Yeah, the exterior. Yeah. The, the, um, I've, I have also been to the entrance of the uh, Leaky Cauldron, I think. it's the, In the first film, it's the little corner. It was now a glass shop, I think. Right. One a little tour. Um, similarly, I have a question about 9 11. Uh, so. <laughs> I'm coming to the, obviously your fantasy film after 9/11. We talked a little bit about this at the start. So, what is it about fantasy in 9/11? What what's the because I because I'm wondering you know is the, how is this film a 9/11 text? Is it uh, should we read these films? You know I'm just in, I'm interested in in fan, first of all fantasy in 9/11. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm wondering. Or, or, or is the question sort of what does what what's different about this movie? Because, that what's worth thinking about in this movie yeah. because 9/11 happened. I. I th- yeah, I think that the the film in mm. no way kind of reflects or relates to 9-11, yeah. but what it does mark is a turning point in the, in the uh, successes of fantasy. Uh, before that, Star Wars and E.T. had, had it was moderate acknowledgement of fantasy as a credible genre, or it, there was kind of no limited uh, success of the genre. Yeah. But... It changed with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Uh, there was a significant change. When you look back at box office, and I've checked yesterday actually, um, this first film is still number 40 in top, top box office. Yeah. Um, it's completely dominated by fantasy film. Uh, there's one exception, or one or two exceptions, of films made before 2001 that are in there. Uh, Titanic's one of them. And I think what's interesting about Titanic was it was also about a disaster um, and uh, it's kind of been reframed in this romance paradigm. I think Carl Plantinger writes about it. Um, And I think fantasy in the same way kind of reframes 9-11. It makes it palatable. There are... And the more distant that we get from 9-11, the more apparent those tropes become uh, to the fact that they virtually construct some of the superhero narratives. So I think that it's um, become a medium through which to reframe a traumatic event. So the first Harry Potter, at least, is um, almost like the bricks 
going back from Dying Alley is the gateway into a sort of cultural climate where mm-hmm. fantasy is permitted industrially to be as big as it is mm-hmm. and you've got a sort of huge global trauma to work through with audiences so that pairing of a commercial landscape where fantasy seems to work mm-hmm. thanks to something like Harry Potter and the immediate context creates the films to come. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, Cathy Smith, I think, says that she, uh, fantasy offered, or several authors do actually, offered a, a means of escape from the scenes of repeated footage of the Twin Towers. Mm. Um, but what's interesting for me is that these films are grounded in death and resurrection and trying to stay alive. That's what it's all about. That's what Lord of the Rings is about. Um, and they've each got metaphors of nuclear destruction and, and uh, etc. So I, th- I think there's that kind of narrative of death. Am I getting too gloomy? No, narrative no, no, no. It's just, just prompted a really uh, interesting... Because you are saying um, about... Embedded the... in, in these films. It's funny because, obviously, the thing with... You just said the film in no way, Harry, Harry Potter and the uh, mm-hmm. Philosopher's Stone, in no way reflects 9-11 and, and stuff. But what's interesting is that... Consciously. Have, it doesn't consciously. Yeah, no, of course. Yes, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting when you think about the... Um, uh, and Alex has, has spoken to me um, over a coffee about this, about the, the, the sp- obviously the instability of space and vertical space and that people can go through walls uh, and that the, yeah, the staircases mm. move and that bricks can just separate. And there's something quite... Mm. The fragility of space... Uh, the fragility of apparently tough buildings. Mm. Yeah, know? there's yeah. something quite interesting yeah. about yeah. that as a... everything. Spe- and if you think about... Kind of, you know, not to continue the glue, but you know, the ground, the kind of ground zero, the 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 destruction of space that is then placed for us on screens. How we digest history is through these kind of hypermediated screen. My knowledge of nine eleven is a screen in the corner. You know, that's that's how we digest history. But obviously, you're writing on Harry Potter and spectacle and and wonder and magical spectacle. It seems in an interesting relationship with something like the historical context of 9-11 where that's all about the fragility of, of space and as you said durability and, and the symbolism of that mm-hmm. no longer um, so durable what, space. So 9-11 was it about the fragility of space but it, it was also presented as, it was also a spectacle, it yeah, was yeah. Um, <laughs> a sublime spectacle and that kind those similar or related spectacles traverse um, fantasy film, I'm thinking about Avatar in particular, where yeah. you get that the tree falling um, so this uh, yeah, spectacle in fantasy film I think is um, kind of it's, it's about people dying effectively, the trucks blown up in the dark night The uh, I'm just trying to think of a, a related spectacle yeah. in Harry Potter but it's it's all about covering over death or fetishizing death. Pop a pop a invisibility cloak over it and it'll be fine. Yeah. That's that's interesting, I think, because also we're talking about a franchise um, that's being written post uh, pre and post nine mm-hmm. yeah, right? yeah. Because the fetishism of death is a really interesting aspect, I think, of its recept the books and the film's reception. Mm-hmm. In that the last three or four books it was Okay, who's J.K. Rowling going to kill next? I mean, you know, talk about um, George R. R. Martin doing it. 
Rowling was there first, and it was this, right, I need to get the new Harry Potter novel because someone will die in it. Mm -hmm. Who's it going to be next? Mm -hmm. And good Lord, spoiler alert, but, you know, um, from book four with Cedric to book five with Sirius to book six with Dumbledore, each getting more and more personal, mm -hmm. and then seven, just the sort of, you know, the colossal death toll mm -hmm. of that book. It feeds into exactly what you're saying and, and must be reflected visually in the movies. Yeah, I think it, oh, it's interesting what you were saying earlier on as well about the reassurance and comfort offered by fantasy film. And I was really interested in what you were saying about that because I think th uh, the first film, well, th throughout the franchise, you get recurrent images of his parents mm -hmm. coming back to life or resurrected. So there's that sense of death isn't forever, it's kind, it kind of makes it palatable and, you know, there's some comfort to be had, perhaps. Well, isn't that, is that the third or the fourth, the third one with the clock, the, the time, being able to kind of go back, the time turn? Time, yes. Um, and obviously that's part that the, the, and stuff has been written on Harry Potter, you know, time space, and how, how obviously, the, the stair, I'm going to stop talking about the staircases, but the staircases <laughs> move, but, like, the characters can move between, there are flashbacks, there are, um, you know, Cauldrons of fire, we anticipate. There's the what is it? The um, Erised, the mirror of Erised, yes. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. What you can see, what you would like to see, what you. Um, and so, yeah, there's, as this, I'm really, I think I'm really interested in the instability of, of, of the, the space. And I'm also wondering whether the, is the first film, and I don't know the answer to this because I don't know the films well enough, is the first film, it seems like the magic in the first film is directed more at, I don't know, the, the movement of space, movement of space and things and then it gets more spectacular and then but the first one is that it seems to do a lot more with the physics of the world and moving it around and and that's where the spectacle is things that you wouldn't expect to move newspaper mm. staircases yeah, are, yeah, are yeah. the things that move yeah. and that's that's the that's the issue um yeah. and later on the magic becomes diverted in other ways it it turns more towards metamorphosis it turns more towards um these kind of big there's no big wand battles in this first movie yeah everything's quite grounded as mm -hmm. you said earlier frank kind of quite domestic quite mundane mm -hmm. everyday objects mm -hmm. um things that you wouldn't expect to move and i wonder whether that's part of that instability or sentience of space that the sentience of the space and that fragility or the durability or the lack of durability might be something that connects up or allows a, a sort of post 9-11 reading, I guess, um, the fragility of space, vertical space in the case of the staircases. But it's interesting um, talking about his parents and that scene, or the, the collection of scenes where he visits the mirror yeah. and um, looks into it and sees his parents. That's the only moment in the movie where the, the, the screenwriters feel the need to narrativize the engagement with fantasy some aspect of fantasy going on in that we get that Dumbledore sort of warning him that this is a dangerous act to assume the dead are alive um, that, that that is that is dangerous um, because you know, I think there's a line I wrote it down was that it is not good to dwell on dreams and forgets mm -hmm. to live um, and that the mirror only provides a fantasy and it doesn't provide a reality and, and it's just interesting, that's the only moment it, it feels the need to do that. Because obviously, you know, you could, you could allegorise that as a sort of critique of the entire movie, right? Which it's not saying. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that it needs to focus on the, the preservation of death at that point. And there's a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. Voldemort's biggest crime is to, in this book at least, is to, and this film, is to try to stay, is to keep staying alive is to want to stay alive even at the expense of slaying a unicorn and things like that and not respecting death is writ large into this movie as the worst kind of fantasy you can ever indulge. Mm -hmm. um, either to solve your own grief and bereavement or to live on 
personally as a sort of narcissistic um, act of, of, of an existential despair. But you said that death is not, you know, can be reversed, or you said earlier that it can be reversed, or the resurrection is a... Throughout, yeah. throughout, the, re- throughout the rest of the franchise, it, um, the parents are, I can't remember, I think it's in the last two films. Yes. The parents reappear and they're kind of dead. So there's always a sense of, in mm. fact, they might even say we're here for you or we're always yeah. here. I'm sure there's a line that says that. Um, isn't, that the, isn't that the parallel worlds again? That it's not. It's, they just they just run parallel and they intersect. Yeah. And obviously we've done previous podcasts on something like Coco, where you have the kind of pa- parallel worlds. It reminds me of the line about the. I think it's in the in the Great Hall about the ceiling. The ceiling isn't real. It's just bewitched. Like well, it's it's just bewitched. Don't it's and there's something not inconsequential about it, but. I don't know, that has a, a, a lack of finality. And that's what the film plays with as well. You know, the, the whole, the, all the movies, the, you could just look into the mirror and see something. And it's very palimpsestic, you know, the past and the present layer on top of each other. I guess that's why it needs Voldemort to add stakes to all of this. Yeah. Right. You know, if anything can do any, if can, everyone can do anything and all this kind of stuff, what should you do becomes the only question. So he grounds the fantasy by well, making in, in it the, consequential. Yes, exactly. He adds consequences to what they're doing. Yeah. Um, uh, every step of the way and that's required to, to sort of have any level of you know emotional or so dramatic we've done the first five minutes yeah they, they hop on the train now all, my other my other notes are Hogwarts Express obviously platform nine three quarters the making strange a familiar space which yeah. is interesting given how these sorts of certainly King's Cross is a tourist attraction now um, my other my other notes are thus sorting hat staircases flying lesson three-headed dog Quidditch troll in the bathroom Invisibility cloak, dragon, centaur. Okay. That's so comment on that. They, or are, <laughs> they are. And just repeat them back to me. No, they are. Um, it's that. That's the sort of CGI I was going through, trying to moments of visual effects that I spotted. That's not to say there aren't green screen and blue screen effects. Um, uh, and then, I mean, that, my other thing before we end is this idea of kind of the parasite. I love the idea that Voldemort's relationship to Quirrell is is the film's is the live action relation to the CGI that it. it they kind of feed off of each other, mm. which is really interesting. It's a really interesting analogy, yeah. Interesting the, 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 the film, because you you said before, Alex, you know, the fantasy exists, but in, in this in this context, the fantasy needs the materiality of the sets or the materiality of diagonality. You can you can have the bricks disintegrate and open up, but you need that materiality. And I feel like there's something quite interesting about this sort of parasitic VFX cinema where um, Voldemort is, is himself this parasite onto a live action live action figure I guess and we get it now with films like Venom I mean lots of symbiotic cinema yeah. and parasitic cinema but, but I is, quite is, like that. is the CGI um, parasitic to live action in this um, or is it I don't know um, I don't find I don't find it as a negative uh, no, no, no. relationship as that uh, maybe succubus creative succubus is the it needs film. it needs the life it needs to continue it, the film feels the need through its visual register and its framing and it's to continually go back to a physical photographed sensibility doesn't it yeah. in a way that recent CGI blockbusters don't seem to require um, and perhaps that is 
rooted in a film a filmmaking team who are coming through the 90s and are still getting used to the technology so in a way the technology is a little bit abject at the moment we have to keep it at bay but also <laughs> try and yeah. you know wrestle with it because it exists um, and also the limitations of the technology and what it can and can't depict well at that point but the materiality i think comes from the, or the, the need it comes from the children you know the fact that we see them aged throughout the there's something quite material about that versus all the other characters voldemort that have these I don't know, potentially these CGI bits added to them. Um, we get it later on, I think, when we get the multiple Harrys in one of the movies, which I can't mm-hmm. remember. Um, but I like, we haven't really talked about the kids, but the kids really ground... I'm saying the kids. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked about the children, but the children really ground the, the narrative because they are exploring everything as we explore, and I, I think that's really, yeah, a virtue of the, virtue of the, the series as well. Is there any more famous uh, scenes that we haven't mentioned that we, we should have, Fran? Or uh, anything or, abject? Anything? Yeah. Anything? Uh, anything further? Or are we are we okay to uh, vacate the castle? I think we can leave. We can leave. Us. Right. I'll so we'll become a, yeah, we'll become a spirit. <laughs> well, well, that leaves that fact. Fran, thanks for joining us on, on the, the, the start of a very long adventure, I imagine. When we'll come to the second one, I don't know. But those out there, we're looking for a new Defence of the Dark Arts uh, teacher because <laughs> I'm afraid uh, uh, they must be replaced each book. So um, anyone who desperately wants to talk about Chamber of Secrets, perhaps get in contact and we'll see what we can do. Um, but that was a really fa- fascinating introduction, both to the, the first film, but also the wider mythology to come. So thanks so much for sort of helping us through that, Fran. Um, if people would like to read your work or, or come to an event you're organising or find you in the virtual world, uh, where should they look? Uh, you can find me at uh, University of Wolverhampton uh-huh. at F dot e dot pheasant hyphen kelly uh, at wlb.ac.uk look at yeah. that i'm glad you said that <laughs> i've me. got yeah. a personalized website um, but we've got have got uh, a number of uh, events planned for the next academic year great. so yeah. okay well wow, terrific that sounds great um and if they, if they wanted to um read your musings on harry potter where would they find it uh, Fantasy film post 9-11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Available in all decent online yes. shops. Yes, and I believe it's coming out in paperback, or it is out in pa- just about out in paperback. Terrific, terrific. Uh, um, well, yeah. go out and grab a copy then. Um, I certainly will. I've been waiting for it to come out for a while, so that's really useful to know. Um, okay, cool. You creep, um, Alex. You yeah, creep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Chris. We'll do cha- well, we will do Chamber of Seat. Well, we've got, what? Well, we will do we will do them all because we're condemned to do this forever. It would seem so, um, but who knows when and who knows how. They keep making them. We'll keep doing them. Yeah, um, but we we we'll call that a day. Day for there. The bell is wrong. The school bell is wrong. Um, we must go home to Dudley. Um, uh, so I don't know what that means and what analogy I'm using. Um, you can find us at fantasy-animation.org. You can read our weekly blog posts and um, download the back catalogue of the podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, as well as on our Facebook pages um, and we'll try and get on other social media when we understand what they are and how they work Correct. but, but not yet it is not this day um, alright uh, thanks very much Chris thank you uh, thanks. thanks very much Fran thank you um, and we'll see you next time bye feels strange to be going home doesn't it I'm not going home not really <laughs>